Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 1401. No, this is not our 1,401st episode. As a reminder, at the start of each season, this is season 14, episode 1. This recorded in February of 2022. Today's date, Valentine's Day, in fact, the 14th of February 2022. I am Sawyer Rosenstein. Joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Happy Valentine's Day, all. Glad to be back. We love being back, and we also love having Mark Raderman with us. Welcome, Mark. Well, thank you, thank you. It's an honor and a privilege, and uh, I'm looking forward to tonight. Me too. We wish Dr. Kat Robson could be with us as well, but uh, unfortunately, due to other obligations, she is not joining us tonight, but we'll hopefully be back very soon. Happy Valentine's Day, Kat. <laughs> Actually, by the time that she's <laughs> we're doing this, it's no longer Valentine's Day on the other side of the globe, but we'll send our love always. So let's begin then uh, with the latest news that literally just came out on today's recording date, which is February 14th, and that is a brand new private mission, and it's not just one mission, it is theoretically three missions, and it is called Program Polaris, with the first mission being called Polaris Dawn. The man behind it is Jared Isaacman, which, if his name sounds familiar, that's because he was also the commander and the brains behind the Inspiration4 mission, which launched last year and sent four private citizens into space aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 and Dragon capsule, where they spent approximately three days in Earth orbit. This first Polaris Dawn mission does have a crew of four as well. It will be a at least five-day mission, which is theoretically going even higher than the Inspiration4 mission, which was the highest mission that has not gone to the moon in Earth orbit with people on board. Uh, in addition to Jared Isaacman on this first mission will be Scott Poteet, Sarah Gillis, and Anna Menon. And the goal of that one will also be to do scientific research and include the first ever commercial spacewalk. After that, they plan to do one more uh, Earth orbiting mission and then eventually fly aboard the first human uh, starship mission once that launches. Once again, the goal of this, in addition to scientific research, is to raise money for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. So this came a little bit out of the blue, and uh, it's ambitious for sure. Yeah, Sawyer, uh, real fast, the, the the gentleman that you were just referring to, uh, Scott Poteet, he's, he's in a, got a very, very impressive dossier. Um He's been a command pilot with uh, 3,200 flying hours in all sorts of aircraft, the F-16, the A-4, T-38, T-37, and T-3 trainers, um, and he's, you know, and um, Alpha Jet, and he's logged, according to the website here, about 400 hours of combat time in uh, Operation uh, Northern Watch, Southern Watch, and uh, a few other um uh, operations here so he's 
no, you know, he's he's no slouch. They've got a they've got a good uh, good co-pilot on board for this mission, um, for at least for the for the one coming up for the first one. One of the components of that first flight is supposedly an EVA, and I have a dozen questions with that. Um, I don't know. Um, there was a Sawyer. There was a uh, a um, you know, a little bit of a quick press conference uh, today about it, and there was a couple of dozen questions about the EVA. From what I saw, I was not not privy to the uh, to the conference itself. Um, but I, you know, it, it, there were a lot of specific you know a lot of specific questions, but not really a lot of vague answers. So I don't really know if they know how to to how this problem is, is going to be solved as far as EVA is, goes, because the pressure suits that they're using now for, uh, for crew dragon are awfully different from that, which you would need to perform an EVA. I mean, there, there are thermal issues going on. There's, there's micrometeorite protection that you have to worry about. There's, you know, is, is there something like a safer involved, on this thing, should the the participant become you know untethered in some manner, there's a lot of vagaries around that. I'm sure all of that's going to be explored. I'm sure SpaceX is going to go ahead and take a look at at what NASA's done in the past, and I'm sure NASA is going to partner you know in the background with all of this um, and be sort of a fountain of information for them. Uh, and not- in addition, there's also the um, the on the website, it does show an artist rendition of it. So, again, this is still early on, but it does appear as if it will be from where the cupola is slash was from the Inspiration 4 mission is where they will go out tethered, whether there yeah. will be a special suit, whether they will have a jetpack slash safer. Those are all, you know, interesting questions. What will the crew, you know, is there going to be an airlock added there or will the rest of the crew have to remain pressurized kind of like they did during the Gemini missions? Yep. There's still yeah, a I lot mean, of questions there, but yeah, it's intriguing. Exactly. So refresh yeah. my memory. Has there been a spacewalk other than using a airlock on either a spacecraft or station since yeah, since, there has since the 70s? Since 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 Apollo, no, not that I'm that I'm aware of. Unless there was a Soviet one that we're not aware of, which is very possible from the U.S. side. No, it was always airlock through shuttle station, mirror, etc. There's probably a reason for using an airlock. But gee, hmm. <laughs> I mean, yes, especially considering for the Gemini mission, it was a crew of two, and they were all professional astronauts. Versus this, which will be a crew of four, and. Yeah, these are no slouches that are on board this Polaris Dawn mission, because we can't forget Sarah Gillis, who was one of the uh, lead space operations engineers, basically one of the main crew trainers for uh, Demo 2, uh, Crew 1, and Inspiration 4. Uh, And then Anna as well, she was a lead space operations engineer, has been a, uh, I forget what they call it, Capcom now, for... Uh, Crew Dragon missions has also core. been, thank you, the core, uh, yeah. has also uh, worked with Dragon crew capabilities, served in mission control during multiple Dragon missions, and 
was a biomedical flight controller for the ISS when she worked at NASA before going to SpaceX. So we're not talking slouches here. We're not talking, you know, generic citizens, so to speak, such as Inspiration4. But yeah, there is that question of, are they then all going to have to do the pressurized spacesuits, essentially, while someone goes for a stroll outside? My bet is uh, you're not going to see an airlock. I think you're going to see, we're going to find out if these pressurized suits actually work. Um, and uh, we're going to find out too if this new EVA suit is going to work. From what I understand, uh, they don't really know at this point who is going to perform the EVA amongst the four at this point. Um, it, it, traditionally, um, you know, if we go back to Gemini or Apollo, traditionally the CDR stayed on board and, you know, the other, uh, astronaut went out, um, the, on Gemini, it was always the co-pilot that went out and did the, did the, uh, the, the EVA and on Apollo, it was the, uh, the CMP that would, or the command module pilot that would go EVA to retrieve, um, some, uh, discs or recordings from one of the empty bays in the um, Apollo service module that was being used to, 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 you know, to use as a recording area. And the, and plus there was some other equipment too, that had to be withdrawn. The, the memory is, is shot as far as what the specifics were, but, um, yeah, and of course that capsule too had to be depressurized, and you know the the CMP the CMP would go out do the EVA, and I believe the uh, the uh, uh, commander would do the the camera work. Um, so it would it it was it's going to be interesting to see what the call is here, um, as far as as who's going to do the honors as you know doing the spacewalk. I know one of the uh, the crew, the crew members, um, um, and, you know, the, is the medical special specialist on board. Anna Menon. Yes. Thank you. Um, she, I, I don't know if she would, she would get the nod for that. Um, or even, even Sarah Gillis would get the nod for that, but it, it just, it, it's going to be interesting to see who, who actually gets the, um, gets the call for to do the EVA but I has still have a dozen questions as far as how they're going to solve the the EVA problem uh, because right now they don't have a suit and I believe Sawyer the the first um possible launch for this was going to be fourth quarter this year that's my understanding is the aim is to launch it this year and as crazy as that sounds, from the time that they announced Inspiration4, which was right around the Super Bowl, which just happened here in the United States, to uh, it, Inspiration4 actually flying, which happened in September, it's not impossible. It's just, oh, no. yeah, it's a very doable timeline, given that they've done it once before. Right, but my, my question is, is the only sticking point would be the, the, the EVA suit. And and would that be ready in time? Because right now I know NASA is trying to develop uh, a suit for for Artemis and also to replace the uh, the current uh, EMU that's being used now on shuttle. Right. I mean, SpaceX, well, SpaceX, on, 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 on space station. 
Right. I mean, they basically said flat out that their goal is to uh, improve the current spacesuit they wear during launch and landing, the IVA, intravehicular activity suit, to make it work as an EVA suit for extravehicular activity in spacewalks. So can I uh, can I cause a, a, a recall in our heads as to watching uh, seal in the hatch and leak checks on the shuttle during those days? And, and that was a hatch that didn't open until they were back on the ground? That's correct. It was pretty involved and time-consuming, and it wasn't something that was just, uh, you know, slam the door, dog the uh, dog the hatch, and and fly. Uh, it's a big deal. I mean, you've got a lot of engineering that changes when you go from a pressurized vessel to no atmosphere and temperature swings and back. That's, I don't know, I'm concerned about it. I, I think, really, there's still too many questions to give an honest, full opinion of exactly how crazy or how ingenious this will be, either or, or maybe a combination of both. But, I mean, that's that's going to be interesting to see that development and what eventually comes out of it, if they're going to use an airlock or not, if they're going to have a different hatch. Because even currently, with the Crew Dragon spacecraft as is, the main hatch, as you mentioned, is not opened. Once it is closed on the launch pad, it is not opened until they are on the recovery ship splashdown in either the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic Ocean. They have a different hatch towards the top that opens for when they are going inside the ISS. So they have some form of hatch system already designed, it's the universal system that's now used at the space station. The question is whether they're going to modify something like that. If they're going to modify, are they still going to have a cupola on that mission? Or is this more as they're talking about a medical focused mission rather than an earth observing focused mission? Sawyer, so is there any indication at all? Cause I'm, I'm looking through, um, I also first, before I even start, uh, a, a shout out to uh, Marsha Smith over at Space Policy Online. She was sort of the scribe for me on on what happened. So she was my only, she was kind of like my research here. Um, was there any mention at all as far as what kind of experimentation would they be doing? Because I know. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. There is um, a large amount of scientific research that is listed in cooperation with multiple research institutions, as well as plenty of universities currently listed on their website, there is at least 15 different organizations they're working in cooperation with, including things like Embry-Riddle University, Johns Hopkins University, University of Colorado Boulder, and so on. Uh, but a lot of the things that they're saying that they want to focus on are uh, human reaction to decompression sickness, ultrasounds to check on venous gas emboli, uh, gathering data on radiation environments, more biological samples, uh, which they plan to use in a long-term biobank, and uh, taking a look at human eyesight during long-duration spaceflight as well, neuroocular syndrome as it's called. So that's just a few of the scientific experiments that they've mentioned specifically on this Polaris Dawn mission. In addition to also using this mission as the first one to communicate solely through the Starlink network, too. 
Yeah, I saw that. Um, sounds like to me, Anna Menon's going to be a very busy individual. Yes. And again, um, a, a big reminder life. for all of this is in addition to that scientific research and assisting with the scientific communities, they are once again raising money and awareness for a fantastic cause. And that is the St. Jude Children Research Hospital. And as a reminder for inspiration for last year, they raised a combined $240 million for that organization. Yeah, you see, that's what I was getting at. I was wondering if they were, if also St. Jude was also flying a, an experiment or if if anything from here would be applicable to the children's hospital. This this is what I was, I, I was kind of getting at and to see if there was any cancer research coming out of this that might help them. It's very possible because right now the list is very preliminary and they say specifically in there, uh, that it includes but is not limited to what we mentioned. So there's a chance that there's going to be plenty more experiments, and they're talking up to five days in orbit. So they'll have a decent amount of time to do some of this research as well. Sounds grand. Um, I'm hopeful I was on also- the research aspect of this. Obviously, there's you know we'll see as they go further on, including the you know eventual human flight aboard Starship, which we're going to talk about momentarily. But you know yeah. I'm. I'm hopeful for this first mission that they can get some good scientific research at least. Yeah. And maybe there may be some follow on, uh, some follow on data that could be looked at on, on space station as well out of this, out of this too. Or in cooperation with, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the things too, I'll, I'll, I'll just throw out there real fast. And this is again, looking through, uh, Marsha Smith's notes. Um, Anna Menon's husband's also a, uh, a an astronaut candidate, or at least trying to be. So uh, it, it's the the question was, you know, is there going to be any kind of consternation too about who's being first? And I, I loved her answer. It was like, not at all. We're we're just happy to be both on this adventure together. And whoever makes it first, they make it first, and we'll be extraordinarily supportive of 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 each other. In this, so I thought that was an, a neat way of way of answering that. Oh, absolutely! It's uh, you know, it was kind of like how you had Bob and Doug, and then eventually you had uh, his wife Megan go up as well. So it's kind of like that when you think of just the normal SpaceX crews as well. Yeah, indeed, and uh, it would. Uh, it's. I'm going to be watching this thing, um, not just from a science aspect too, but also again from this this EVA thing because I, I I I'm still scratching my head and trying to figure out how the devil they're going to go ahead and develop a full up EVA uh, qualified spacesuit by the end of the year if they're going to make this. That's going to be the only sticking point on this mission. Um, and I don't really know if 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 they can make that deadline great, um, but I just want to make sure that they've thought of everything, that they've crossed all the I's and I mean crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's, and made sure that this the suit is going to be what they're looking for to accomplish this. Because I, I you know I, I don't know if there's going to be a set set of tasks that the the crew member who does do the CVA is going to do and so on a lot's clouded here and I'm sure I mean again this this just got released today 
Yeah, and just this morning. And I'm just going to so throw sure out, our answers are coming. And I'm just going to throw out there as well the I don't think that they would go out with it if it's unsafe, considering the fact that two of the crew members on board, one of them was a literal astronaut crew trainer, and right. the other has been, you know, the core talking with these crews during their mission and working in mission control during crewed missions. So they understand the importance of safety in crew spaceflight. Right. And I mean, we've there and and I believe both are, are NASA vets. Yes. And by the way, so. going back to that naming thing that uh, just brief aside here, you know, how um, SpaceX has renamed a bunch of their ships. The uh, fairing recovery ships are now named Bob and Doug. Uh, and then the crew recovery ships are now named uh, Shannon and Megan after the first female astronauts that flew on <laughs> Dragon. So both uh, husband and wife now have SpaceX boats. <laughs> Just a fun aside there. Cool. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> uh, anyway, now we move along with, again, as mentioning their end goal is to eventually fly hum the first human flight on board Starship, which uh, this past week Elon Musk gave an update in front of Starbase and the first uh, fully stacked uh, Starship that they plan on using on their first orbital test. Uh, and I know... This seemed to be a consensus on this of the rocket looks really cool, fully stacked. It's awesome looking, but we didn't really learn much of anything during this update. I wish, you know, normally I preface it with here's the highlights of what they, you know, said. And then we go more in depth and I hand it off to Eugene. But there's not anything really to go in depth into, it seems like. No, there wasn't, Sawyer. I mean, I, I walked away from that. And a lot of other, you know, hardcore press folks walked away from last Thursday's event saying, you know, where's the beef? There really wasn't a ton of news there. And I mean, it was great theater. You know, you had the prototype behind you, you know, fully stacked, which was in the process of being de-stacked this morning um, for, for the event. Uh, it looked gorgeous, unbathed in that all that blue light. So it it made for wonderful theater, but the opening preamble wasn't anything we didn't know already before. This audience has heard the whole reasoning as to why they're doing doing this, and you know to make make you know humanity multiplanetary and all that. But there weren't a lot of answers in this as far as the honest to god progress that was going on the only thing we, we did learn about is is raptor 2 which is melting um as as they use it um it's a bit of a significant upgrade from the the the, the first raptor engine which musk if i recall exactly compared it to a, a you know a, a bowl of spaghetti whereas the uh, the new Raptor is a little bit more compact and a little bit more, you know, less complicated, but it still has its problems. It's still melting while while it's being fired. It still has not made the the I, I believe the eight minutes that it takes to to you know to get a pill. Um, so that's one of the problems that they have to solve. Uh, what was annoyingly uh, missing to me was 
any news whatsoever um, on the HLS contracts, the human landing system contract that SpaceX had been awarded. Uh, what was it? You know, two, uh, uh, just the beginning of, of last year. Um, and there was, there was just no word of it other than a tip of the hat and a thank you for, for the, for the confidence in the company. And as the guy that's kind of footing the bill for this, the American taxpayer, I'd like to know where we're at with that. I mean, NASA has a, has an aggressive schedule of trying to get to the moon by 2025. We don't know if that's going to be doable or not, you know, given the constraints of, some other things that are going on within within Ornamus, you know, SLS and the Orion, but they're going to sure try to to shoot for that. Um, where's the where's the lander? I just don't want to see the lander become the hang up for uh, for for Artemis. And there was just nothing there. Absolutely nothing. And it was just infuriating. Yeah, there were some great questions that were asked but weren't fully answered, including the question of the life support system, of oh. which, yeah, basically the response seemed to be, uh, we're working on it. We'll figure it out as we go, which is not reassuring yet for crew flight. I understand right now their focus is more on proof of concept, considering that this would be their first orbital attempt they want to get that up and going and prove that they can get it into orbit and eventually reuse it, because I know that's crucial to their Starlink futures. But at the same time, as you mentioned, NASA did award them the human landing contract, essentially, and you can't land humans without air for them to breathe and, you know, yeah. a, a way to recirculate the air and, you know, all of the things associated with environmental control and life support systems or ECLIS. So yeah, there's that. I mean, and then there was the second question that was also unanswered uh, that was asked of um, who would other potential customers be besides SpaceX with their own Starlink, as we mentioned, and other satellites and NASA. And there was no real response to either of those. And I think those were the two big questions at least that i had going into this is what's the future of starship once it gets going because we're still waiting right now on the faa and the environmental survey to be completed for them to actually launch from boca chica slash starbase texas um so those were the the only other questions really that could be answered and it didn't seem like they were no they weren't and just as an aside too the the faa has announced that on, uh, I believe they've pushed that decision backward even further now to March 28th. They have about maybe 19,000 petitions still to sort through in this whole thing. And they want to make sure everybody gets a good hearing and, and everybody, you know, the, everything's weighed and so on and so forth. So, you know, at least the FAA is taking taking its time to to look through all of this, including you know the ones that are yay and the others that are nay, and they're they're trying to make a a reasonable assessment of what's going on. Uh, what that bodes for Boca Chica, that's another story. Um, I've got my own ideas. Um, 
and Elon has his ideas. Actually, it was addressed at the event that yes. they said their main plan is once they get things going, they want to use Starbase slash Boca Chica as their testing grounds and experimentation grounds, whereas their main launching site they're planning on using is the addition that they are currently building to launch Complex 39A at the Kennedy Space Center. And as a reminder out there, they have already received FAA clearance and approval and the environmental impact has been completed for Starship at 39A. So theoretically, if they had the infrastructure built currently, which they're working on, at the Cape, they could test launch out of the Cape tomorrow. Right now, it's still waiting for the FAA approval out of Starbase, but it seems like all this work to get Starbase up and running, that once they get started, their main goal of potentially up to three flights a day with extreme rapid reusability, a lot of that would be out of the Cape rather than Texas. Yeah, the other thing too, Sawyer, you were you were talking about the what, the thing that they were really trying to stress, or at least Elon was trying to stress at this this event, was the fact that they are aiming for rapid reusability, rapid turnaround. And I'm sitting there, okay, fine, but to what end? Why do you want to launch a something of the equivalent of a Saturn V three times a day? And it, it just, that's just mind boggling to me. Why do you want to do that? I mean, he still has this, this idea that you're going to use a Saturn V class launch vehicle the way you would a 747 and transport people from, say, you know, the Cape over to Singapore in an hour. Okay, great. That's wonderful. Um, and do it really cheap. And I'm sitting there, yeah, but even if he gets the numbers down to where he wants them, which he he's theorizing is going to be, I believe he said, Sawyer, and you can probably correct me on this one. He he's right now he's he he's figuring about sixteen million, but then he kind of brought the number down to three million eventually, which is where what their goal is. Even right. even if you do, even if you do the math though, and you have one hundred and fifty people on board, that's still thirty thousand dollars per ticket. But that's kind of the equivalent, I guess, of you know. 747 versus Concorde. A 747 will get a lot more people there cheaper, whereas the Concorde, you know, is going to get you there with that speed, which, you know, when you look at the price of what it was when Concorde first started with inflation, you're looking at nearly the same cost, honestly, if you include inflation. I, I beg to, well, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't know if there's a company that's going to go ahead and spend, you know, $30,000 to transport their CEO over to Singapore when, you know, in an hour when they could easily do it on like, say, an SST, which we're working on right now, which won't have that sonic boom problem. Yeah, he will have to cool his heels a little bit for a couple hours, maybe three, four hours. I tell you what, but, I'll just I'll just do a Zoom call and you can pay me the savings or part of the savings in my uh, bonus. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. You know, so so Mark, you've kind of answered my question. But what's the, what was that uh, company for when you absolutely positively have to be there? 
uh, uh, do, do we want to advertise them? <laughs> that was a rental car company, wasn't it? No. no which was, company was it? Just go ahead. It, it, it was a shipping company. It was one of the major shipping That's companies. That's what it was, yes. It was FedEx. Yeah. So, it's, um, you know, it's that <laughs> instead of FedEx, it's Starship, I guess, in their <laughs> eyes for that. But for me, it didn't sound like the main takeaway was the point to point yet. It still sounds like get up, you know, obviously the big thing, getting their Starlink network up and running, of which they say is unsustainable unless they can launch multiple at a time with the help of Starship. But eventually, maybe point to point, but to be able to get multiple satellites up, multiple people up and back very quickly, I think is the ultimate goal, even though at this very moment, I don't see a huge demand for that just yet. Yeah, and 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 we'll talk about Starlink a little later too. But um, the it, it, again, I just don't understand the, the to me the economics of it don't work. Um, that's one. Uh, but the the other thing too is is again, I don't un, I, I don't know where the end game is, and I don't know how many other customers, as you pointed out, Sawyer. Other than the NASA, uh, would be int- or even ESA or uh, you know one of the major spacefaring nations would have. Uh, those are the only customers I see. I don't see, um, you know, I don't see a, a lot of these these other launch services going to. You know, I don't see OneWeb or anybody like that using Star using Starship to waft like a zillion satellites into low Earth orbit. I just don't see it. I mean, right now, as of today, we have a third customer, and that's eventually the Polaris mission, the third one, which will be the first crew flight. But you know, that's that's three customers now we're at. So it's more than two, but it's yeah, still only but- three when you look at you know. I don't know if that's something, say a Department of Defense contract might even be needed for. Yeah, but but honestly, as far as the the Polaris stuff, who's who's helping to foot the bill for that? That's privately you know, funded. I mean, that's Jared Isaacman and all. Of, that's another privately funded program. That's not a SpaceX funded yeah, program. That's that. Well, I I understand too that that there's some help coming from the company as well on on that one too i'm sure they may they'll get a discount but theory technically it is a fully private mission yeah but yeah it is and and spacex also being a private company um you know doesn't i think is also throwing some shekels at this because they stand to benefit from it but um that's neither here nor there um, it, it it's still, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what the rationale is, what the business case for Starship is other than, um, other than being involved some way, shape or form, um, for a NASA mission. I know his, his overall goal is to go ahead and transport people to Mars and transport something like you know, a million tons of logistics to the Martian surface. But again, he, he it, there's a lot of generalizations in the plan. There's no, the devil is always in the details. And those details are, 
are very, very intricate and nobody has the answers for them if you start going in there. And again, that's that that goes part and parcel with the ECLIS system, Sawyer, that you were talking about. Right. I mean, there's still definitely some questions. And I, I think the biggest thing, honestly, is going to be once we finally see this fly hopefully successfully into orbit at some point, they're hoping this year. And again, a lot of that is also going to depend on the FAA process. But yeah, and 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 the way things are going there. Um, all right, I'll I'll spill the beans again. This this is my opinion. Um, so I've been watching this for a while. In fact, I sat in and I, if folks remember, I I actually was listening to the FAA testimony and so on where people were allowed to go ahead and just sort of give their piece for two minutes um, at that. And I was kind of live tweeting some of that, uh, judging about what, what I heard. Um, there was a lot of people there from other places that were really, really pro. Yeah, just do this. In fact, one gentleman from, from Spain, if I recall, was was really gung-ho about it and basically telling the residents of Boca Chica, you know, you're spoiling the area just by living there. You know, and I was like, wow, talk about arrogance. But um, uh, it, it, I guess, too, there, there's a lot of nuances about people not wanting them to be there because of the disruptive operations that have been going on. There have been local stories in the local papers about uh, blocking off um, blocking off thoroughfares when they really don't need to be blocked off. Um, and basically SpaceX security going a little bit haywire, in fact, running a foul of some uh, government officials over there too. Um, I get the, I'm, I'm going under the pretext that those, you know, that security operation has been admonished for their actions. But um, I, the real kicker was the fact that now I believe the department of interior is involved. And uh, if, you want to hear the specifics of what's going on with that. And it's, it's rare. It's another rare occasion here, boys and girls, where we're going to recommend that you listen to another podcast. This week's um, rendition of the space show with David Livingston had um, uh, some folks on there that, that went into depth. Uh, Doug Messier from Parabolic Arc was, was really, really covering the story that he had about um, about the whole thing and what the Department of Interior's objections were, uh, both Fish and Wildlife and the National Parks Department, uh, because of some of the endangered species that are within the area of Boca Chica. Uh, they, uh, plus a lot of these explosions that they've had in the past, there's, you know, allegations that some of that is still lying around out there and hasn't been fully, fully been cleaned up. And, uh, I believe the, uh, the area surrounding that, that, uh, 
uh, installation really is um, nesting grounds for endangered species and so on and so forth. And uh, SpaceX kind of blew it there because the initial idea around that area was that they were going to launch Falcon 9 a few times um, and not, and maybe Falcon Heavy, but nothing as big as Starship. And now all of a sudden it, it just sort of, Starship just kind of took over and, and that, that was, was the Achilles heel, the whole, the whole plan. So my, my bet is I believe the scenario where Boca Chica basically becomes just simply an R and D area for SpaceX and nothing more like you might see engine test stands built out there. Um, but that will be about it. You're not going to see, um, you're not going to see Starship launch from from Boca Chica. I, I'm I'm telling it that, that that right now. That's my prediction. And again, that's my opinion. I'll go down on re record saying it. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I just don't see SpaceX being granted a license for Starship to go orbital from Boca Chica. I see them launching from the Kennedy Space Center. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens there. So we will continue to keep a close eye on the Starship program and what happens out of Starbase. Uh, the other thing related to that, of course, as we talked about, was the uh, human landing system contract. And before we get humans to the surface, we first need to get SLS up and running. That's the space launch system. And uh, the vehicle is just about fully stacked, but rollout and launch has been pushed back again. Yeah, the well, here here's here's the deal with SLS. It is fully stacked, um, and they were running a lot of. They're they're basically wanting to make sure that a lot of their documentation for getting the vehicle together is in place. They want to make sure that the procedures are good because again, this is the first time. They are going through this. They want to make sure that everything is going, you know, by the numbers. Um, again, they want to make sure that all the I's are dotted, T's are crossed. Everybody knows what they're doing. Uh, that's basically what I got from the uh, the discussion on uh, on a uh, on a press conference that that occurred a couple of weeks back with reference to why the delay delay is going on. Also, there is a ton, and I do mean a ton, of data flight recorders on this thing. And again, this is not going to happen since Artemis 1 is essentially a test flight. From what I think uh, Mike Bolger said, who's uh, in charge of uh, NASA ground systems, on the on the press conference he indicated that this vehicle has got to be the most wired thing nasa has ever flown in its history there are more data flight recorders on this thing than you can shake a stick at and they want to make sure that all of those data flight recorders are working that they're delivering telemetry because 
I understand Artemis 2 and Artemis 3 will not be this wired. So they want to make sure that that all of this this flight testing equipment is up to up to uh, you know up to snuff. They want to make sure that you know the procedures are there. And again, they just want to take their time to make sure that the vehicle gets all the TLC it needs because there's a lot hinging on this mission being right. Basically, the, the entire future of the program is hinging on this, you know, working without too many problems and too many flaws. And they want to make sure that they get all of that right. Even when they go ahead and roll this thing out to the pad, you still want to go ahead and go through hooking the vehicle up, making sure that all of the connections work and so on. Um, I know they they did that with a, um, I believe, a, a dummy vehicle at, at some point. But this is the real thing. This is the real, you know, thing that's going to light and, and get Artemis 1 and, and get the Orion test vehicle out to, out to the moon. So they want to make sure that everything is working as advertised. They're being ultra careful. And to be honest, I can't blame them. Uh, right. They're... I mean, think about it. How long has this mission been in the works? We had Constellation, which was then canceled, and now we have SLS. We've been waiting for years. The budget has continued to go on up and up. People have continued to question, why are we even still doing this? What's the point of it? So obviously, they're dealing still with a lot of scrutiny. I mean, we now have a vehicle to show for it, which is very exciting. We now have a launch set for this year at some point, which is also very exciting. We finally have something to show after all these years of talking about it and talking about it and talking about it, dragging on and going over budget. At least we now have something. So as long as this works, that's the most important thing. So I don't blame them for taking their time. And in terms of the importance of the quote unquote wiring and all the test things inside, the reason two and three will have fewer test articles in it is because they will have technically a test article, just people, real people. So before you put a crew on board, yeah. you know, you're going to want to make sure everything is darn perfect. Yeah. I mean, that, that was, that was the other point I, I, I was, I was going to mention too. Once you put these little pink squishy things called human beings on board this thing, you know, you want to make sure that everything works. So before you do that, you want to make sure that your all of your you know, the spacecraft is is in great shape, and you feel comfortable with looking somebody's relative that's gonna you know that's gonna fly one of these things, and say yeah we're confident that we're gonna get these people back home to live to tell the tale. So you know I mean there's been a lot of criticism as to why. You know, again, it's delayed and so on. And Sawyer, you brought up a lot of stuff there too. I mean, Orion itself has gone through. I don't know how many incarnations. It as you as you pointed out, it was it was a canceled vehicle under Constellation. Then the whole story of okay, well, we could still use it for cargo. So, and I know we want a lifeboat capability. So maybe we could still use it for, for cargo up, crew down, and 
thankfully saner heads prevailed and it went back to a an exploration vehicle then it was decided hey let's bring the europeans on board so you know boom guess what the the, the us version of the service module went away for orion and the new version from isa got installed on there there so they've got skin in the game now and can take credit for that that they are now powering uh you know orion on its way uh so that was not initially in the plan either um orion again orion has gone through so many design changes so it's really not the same vehicle it was under constellation and the SLS, we know that whole program started, what, sorry, around 20, I want to say 2011, 2012, somewhere in that time frame. I think it was between 2010 and 2011, right around the end of the shuttle program was when yeah. it officially transitioned over from Constellation to this. Yeah, I, I, I'd have to see when our, our, our first show, because I remember we mentioned it, they could think there was some discussion about it as early as our SKS-134 effort. Um, but, uh, uh, that too has gone through all sorts of, you know, consternation and so on and so forth. But finally, after all, all the, the politics and all the, the flame throwing is, is all over there, it's going to stand on, on 39B and we'll be taking Orion around the moon and even further out than that and bring it home. And Orion is really going to undergo a lot of tests during our Artemis one. It's going to really be pushed to its lim absolute limits um, because there'll be nothing more than, than a test mannequin on board. And uh, uh, you want to go ahead and do all of that kind of thing without the crew. And you really want to push the spacecraft to it, to its absolute limit um just as an aside and i'm going to bring this up up real fast i i kind of put a, an essay together last year after the the um the core stage test green green run test got cut short and there was a lot of you know gnashing of teeth and wearing of sackcloth out there and on twitter and other places about that and i brought up the story about a uh, two young kids, myself and a and a friend of mine, that took a car of mine uh, and threw a, a V eight engine into it, and we had no idea what the devil we were doing. Okay, bottom line, we really had to do a lot of homework. I mean, the 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 biggest thing we had ever done before that was uh, to help a friend put a put a clutch into a beat up Chevy Biscayne and we we took the 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 four cylinder engine out, out of this this old hatchback of mine and we threw it into uh we we threw a V8 into it and we had to do some major league modifications to the car we had to do some major league modifications to to the engine did it go over budget you bet it did did it take as did it take um 
the weekend that we planned it. Nope, it went way longer. It We were there for probably about a week, maybe even, I think, a week and a half, actually, trying to make sure that all the components went in the way they were supposed to. Um, did we learn stuff from it? You bet. And when everything, when push came to shove and it came time to turn the key, did it work right the first time? No, we had to spend a lot more time doing fine tuning to it, but we eventually learned more about the machine we had. And again, this goes with the, with the mantra, you know, learn from what you fly and test what you fly. Um, but did we learn a lot? Yeah. And was it all worth it in the end? Well, you know, the, this little car, um, that nobody thought was, was any, anything to mess around with on the street, it would suck the headlights out of, out of a Corvette of its day. So, you know, was it worth it in the end? Yeah, it was worth it. And that's where I'm seeing with SLS here. What did it go over budget? Yes. Did was it, you know, was it really tough? Yeah. Um, did we have a lot of challenges all along the way? You bet. But did we learn things from it? Yes. And the Piesta resistance is going to be finally when this thing takes to the sky and and brings Orion around the moon and brings it on home. And ladies and gentlemen, car talk on NPR continues <laughs> on our streaming service. <laughs> no, it, it's a it's a good comparison. So basically, it, it's taking the time. And uh, we promise we're not going to be all negative Nancys today or this entire season. So, yeah, just, <laughs> just for the next rest of the, the show. No, I'm kidding. Uh, our next story, though, does continue with some concerning trends, we'll say, rather than negative trends. Uh, and that was a uh, joint letter that was sent uh, by NASA, that was sent by the National Science Foundation, as well as the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, which, I'll be honest, I learned seeing this article was the uh, existed for the first time. It was a letter dated on February 8th, 2022, and it was sent in regard to concerns about the upcoming application from SpaceX for the Generation 2 of Starlink. And we should point out that it is not just SpaceX, it is the global constellation future that we've been seeing when it comes to uh, satellite internet, such as Starlink and uh, One World and similar satellites. It addressed a few major concerns, the biggest being congestion in low Earth orbit. With the quantity of satellites they're talking about, it mentions that essentially we are going to take the total number of satellites that have ever been launched into orbit and are going to essentially be doubling that in a lot quicker time frame. And you've got people tracking these low Earth orbit objects, whether that be actual satellites defunct satellites, pieces of satellites from collisions, which there is that concern then of collisions, as well as potential impact to uh, science, including down here on Earth, as well as uh, major observatories and space observatories that are based in low Earth orbit. Now, obviously, there's things that are being done by multiple sides to try and prevent that. SpaceX has been working 
with the scientific community, with their next generation of Starlink satellites, to help in terms of their brightness for when it comes to ground-based observations. But regardless, there is still that concern, especially, you know, as we saw with China going and blowing up satellites and creating thousands of tiny little pieces, there's already a lot of space junk up there, and adding in these satellites, which, yes, will burn up relatively quickly based on their low orbit, still can pose a risk. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just really interject, too, that SpaceX just placed uh, about 48 uh, Starlink satellites up there, but because of uh, a, a solar storm, 40 of them are coming down prematurely. So that's there. So that whole that whole part of the constellation is going to have to be relaunched. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the whole thing, you know, with OneWeb, with Starlink, with um, all of these other mega constellations that are being planned, and that seems to be the, um, you know, the the way communication satellites seem to be going. Um, the professional, uh, the professional astronomical community is saying, you know, Hey, yo, whoa, whoa we got to stop here because not only is it going to go ahead and impact ground-based observations, but it's going to really, really mess up some other NASA initiatives that are going on. Uh, for instance, the, uh, you know, planetary security initi initiatives. NASA has to go, has this congressional mandate to track all of the, um, the planetary bodies that may pose a risk to Earth. And a lot of the, the ground-based uh, observations are also helping our, our eyes in the sky to go ahead and look for those. And when you've got when you've got these constellations flying all over the place, um, it, it's going to make it's going to be a very very difficult thing for the professional astronomers to go ahead and do their work. I mean, I'll, I'll give SpaceX this much credit: they are working with the astronomical community. They are giving over their all the uh, the uh, ephemeris to um, their Starlink satellites. But that just isn't really enough. And we've got the um, the Vera Rubin Observatory coming online quite soon. That's that's currently under construction. We've got a few other new ground-based observatories that are coming online. And a lot of these are these ground-based observatories are going to be impacted by a lot of these mega constellations. And I mean, the, 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 the genie's already out of the bottle. So the professional astronomical community really put this, this letter together and said, hey, we, we got to draw the line somewhere here. And that's basically what this is all about. There's already a ton of, of stuff up there um, as far as, you know, uh, orbital debris and, and all of this other other trash. I mean, we had the, the Russian ASAT test uh, just before the end of the year, which really threw um, a monkey wrench into a lot of things, including going into a safe haven mode 
on the International Space Station itself. I think I think that the new cloud that got generated had about maybe what I think fifteen or sixteen hundred trackable pieces. Lord knows how many other pieces are up there that we can't track from that event. Uh, so, if I may point out the irony, uh, China has also criticized SpaceX because of yeah. some of their Starlink satellites getting close to their space station. Just throwing that out there. Yeah, and and I I you know, I mean grant you, yeah, you know that needs to be worked on as well. But I think too, everybody's saying, "Oh, we got to cooperate with China and space." There's a part right there where we can cooperate with with China in in space flight and and you know just to make sure that we kind of you know stay out of each other's way in 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 a way and make sure that uh, everybody is using low earth orbit safely and responsibly and i think that's really the gist of this letter and if I may yes. point out one more interesting thing in this letter that we haven't talked about is the final point that they give. And Mark, you have probably heard a lot of what's been going on with uh, the concerns with airlines and 5G here in the United States. People don't think about that when it comes to spaceflight. However, Starlink operations, as it points out here, and I will quote from the letter, Starlink operates in the 14 to 14 and a half gigahertz band which overlap or are adjacent to frequency-supporting NASA's tracking and data relay satellite system. So there's concerns about frequency interference. It could be something as simple as, you know, the 5G issue that we're seeing here now with shared bands uh, with airlines on Earth, but it's something still to consider. Radio frequency spectrum is not infinite. It's a limited resource. It's a finite resource. And when you look at just terrestrial applications, the distances, altitudes, power, uh, possibility of interference, all of those things uh, are extremely complicated and difficult to mitigate. This is nothing new as far as the National Science Foundation. If anybody's kind of had the opportunity to sit in on some of the the NSF meetings uh, when the, they're virtual and and the public is invited to sit in on them. Um, the same thing with the National Academies as well when they get together. Um, as far as some of their their space related efforts, uh, and the public is allowed to sit in on them. If you get the chance, please do, because a lot of this stuff, Sawyer, that that came up in this letter has been brought up in meetings in the past and if i remember and i'm blowing the dust off of my my memory a little bit uh there was a discussion about this last fall and the idea was to yeah we got to really really draw a line in the sand somewhere and at least raise the red flag within the scientific community that both of these these mega constellations and the 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 spectrum issues are going to wreak havoc with a lot of the astronomical studies that are currently going on and that are on the boards as far as the terrestrial stuff and stuff is concerned so especially if you're going to do any any significant radio astronomy you know arecibo may be gone but that's that's we still have a a good 
radio astronomy community here in the U.S., and there's still experimentation going on, did all over the world. And this is going to go ahead and, and impact those studies. So, again, the, the letter is, is just saying, hey, something's got to be done here. And they're raising the red flag. Should, you know, it, do we have to do any kind of regulation? You know, does the FCC have to step in, you know, and as the regulatory body for the, um, uh, for the, uh, for the spectrum, does the FAA have to step in as far as being the regulatory body for the skies? What can be done here at this point? Um, and I think the astron the, the professional astronomical community knows we can't put the toothpaste back into the tube right now. It's just not going to happen. What can we do to to work with these companies to assure that professional astronomers can still use the sky and that they can still do their astronomical work and, and so on? Uh, the other, but I think too, what may end up getting the short shaft in this are the amateur astronomers, and the amateur astronomers also contribute a ton to the professional astronomy community. So it's, I, I they're just as in a halfway ha house here. Um, I, I don't know what's going to happen going forward with a lot of these mega constellations. But I do know this, some of this is going to have to be curtailed eventually. And it, both of these factions are going to have to find a happy medium somewhere along the line. I'm going to continue being a, a fly on the wall at some of these NSF meetings uh, that surround this topic. And and uh, I'll, I'll see what I can pick up and contribute further. <laughs> It's a top, we are the Space Junk Podcast. We've talked about it before. We continue to keep the moniker all these years later. <laughs> it's still something that we follow and that we will continue to follow. And again, we're not saying that Starlink is space junk. We're talking about space junk mitigation in general, and that includes the adding of more and more satellites and potential debris into orbit. So just saying that right now, this isn't calling Starlink junk. Haven't said that. <laughs> no. No, not at all. And and again, we're not we're not just you know we're not bashing you know SpaceX to 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 bash SpaceX here, but we are kind of shining the ugly light on the mega constellation concept uh, overall. And there's got to be a better way to to get internet all over the place other than just you know throwing stuff up into the sky and and you know, we're bouncing signals off of it. Just There just has to be. Here, here. Well, I know there's a lot of concern as well with the junk around the space station, as you mentioned. You know, at one point they had to go into safe mode, but that may not be an issue for too much longer as a latest update on the International Space Station extends it till 2030 and also addresses a plan to dispose of it in 2031. And now I know this made huge headlines as NASA planning to destroy the space station in 2031. Whoa, big headline stuff. You know, and I say this as someone who works for a traditional media source, just saying that. It gets headlines, it gets attention, but essentially NASA's doing what they've been doing 
for many years, and that is safely disposing of something that has served us well for all these years. Yeah, Sawyer, uh, one of the things that actually NASA has been criticized for in the past is not having a space station disposal plan. And at least they have, they've started the preliminary, you know, works to go ahead and safely um, make sure that the ISS is put in the water safely after its its useful lifetime is, is over. Uh, first, the big news was that the station's life was extended to 2030. That is huge. That means that if as long as the station stays viable, um, it will will continue to serve not only uh, the taxpayer here in the United States that helped build it, but also the the others uh, nations that have contributed to its construction. Uh, it does have some, shall we say, some some aches and pains at this point because it is getting to be an old facility. Uh, we do have the the pressure leak in the Zarya module, which is leaking about a pound of oxygen a day. Uh, the crew, by the way, is in no danger. And from what I understand, too, if worse comes to very worse and they cannot isolate the the problem in the Zarya module, and if it gets worse, they can just close that module up and, and you know, call it a day. It's, it's, it's not something I believe right now it's currently being used for, for storage and, and maybe some other unsundry things, but it's nothing that can't be over you know it's nothing that can't be overcome if they go ahead and, and close that particular module up permanently um that's one but uh but two finally nasa is working on a responsible way of disposing of the facility once its operational lifetime is over and i, I the 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 other flip side of that coin too is what nasa is doing in the meantime trying to get commercial companies to go ahead and start their own space stations as well so when you know iss does deorbit there may be you know one two possibly three free-flying commercial stations already in place i mean we we touched on um you know com how commercial is getting some really good things going, like you know SpaceX and the Polaris mission. Um, Axum Space is going to be launching the, their first privately run mission to the International Space Station as a precursor for attaching a couple of modules to the International Space Station that they would operate independently of the ISS. And eventually, those modules would become a free flyer after uh, the ISS lifetime is over. So it, it's sort of Axum's way of trying to learn what's going on, how to operate this thing beforehand, and still have the, you know, still have the freedom, if you will, will to to go ahead and go into the International Space Station. Um, and learn more about its operation before they go ahead and go off on their own and detach. There are three other companies, too, 
um, that are also doing doing their own space stations. NASA's already given them contracts. Uh, Nanorax is one. Uh, Blue Origin is is the other, and I believe uh, Northrop Grumman is uh, the the other company that is those three individual firms have been selected by NASA to go ahead and develop their own own stations. I believe uh, SpaceX tried to put Starship in as an independent station and NASA didn't really warm up to that idea. But um, anyway, to, to try to put this into perspective, uh, NASA does not want to have a lapse in having a U.S. presence in low Earth orbit. And that's why they want to get these commercial stations going before the ISS gets you know, thrown into the drink. And uh, again, Sawyer, as you pointed out, it's nothing as dramatic as, as what, what the, the, the headlines have been yelling and screaming about. You have to have, have a responsible plan for, for getting rid of a facility um, the size of the International Space Station. I mean, if, if some of you may remember the, the Skylab uh, problem that we had when Skylab was coming down in 1979, uh, we couldn't control it. And at least this will be a controlled burn. I believe the, the plan, Sawyer, if, you, if um, you'll forgive me, is right now at least uh, to use three progress modules. <laughs> You said this would be a controlled burn. Don't you mean it could be a controlled burn? <laughs> it should. Yeah. Yes. Should be a controlled burn. And what was the year they're talking about uh, deorbit? 2031. Do you know why it's 2031 and not 2030? Why? Because it's going to take every minute of that time to get the parties involved to agree to it and to get somebody to write a check. And then chances are the budget will be short, so there'll be corners cut. And I wonder where that'll affect the actual impact point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is a, an area that is supposed to be the farthest point away from all civilization, Point Nemo which will eventually be the resting point for the International Space Station, as it was with Mir and Skylab and so on and so forth and many other satellites. That's a big if. I mean, this thing is the size of an American football field. It's huge. And it is going to take a lot to bring it down in an exact, very specific point. As you mentioned, Gene, the plan is right now three Russian Progress vehicles as opposed to something like, you know, a U.S. Cygnus vehicle or an ATV or HTV or something else to help power it down. It's all of them have to fire exactly right, exactly the correct point to get it to land there. And then everything has to break up as they would expect it to in a computer simulation, which if anyone's ever used Windows at blue screens, computers aren't always 100 percent perfect. There's a good chance that they're going to make a big deal out of it, just like they did, I think, with Mir and sell the helmets and all the stuff to look up in the sky and sell you money if you find a piece. But 
I think most of it's going to end up in the ocean. If it's in that exact point Nemo, though, we'll see. Well, to also to um, to to just interject something, uh, they are looking into using Cygnus for that. If you know things don't go well right now, as folks understand what the headlines, um, things may not go well with with Russia politically at this point. So they are looking at using Cygnus. In fact, the, the next Cygnus mission coming up is going to go ahead and do an ISS reboost. It won't be everybody saying it, it, this is the first planned reboost. Cygnus has done, done a, uh, an ISS reboost before. Um, so this isn't the first one. This is the first planned one. So we'll see how well well Cygnus can can go ahead and reboost the International Space Station on on this particular planned um, juncture. So the um, the uh, SS Pierce Sellers um, will go ahead and be put in the driver's seat to to uh, to boost the International Space Station for, uh, on one one boost. Uh, boost shot so we'll see how, how that works but if it continues if, if it proves itself and continues to do that you may see that you know you may see the the, the Cygnus doing a lot of the that that work either way I think it's already time for people on Etsy to start making the uh, the hats and the t-shirts and all that stuff just like we did for uh, Mirror and Skylab what do you say oh, boy. who's on board Wait, I can hardly wait. I mean, I still, I'm old enough to remember the the Skylab hard hats and um, all all of that, and you know, it, it was uh, it was just 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 incredible. And unfortunately, you know, <laughs> some of the things that that happened during Mir was were also rather unfortunate. But um, Australia, that's your warning again. Cats, we need to protect cat at all costs. Yeah, <laughs> I'll I'll send her a I'll send her a a a, a hard hat with the NASA insignia. On Deal. It. That'll, that'll that'll help. That'll make sure that uh, she's she's not 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 affected. Um, but uh, yeah, the unfortunate part about about Skylab was it did impact parts of the Australian outback and. The U.S. had to, you know, send people over there and and have, you know, the whole diplomatic thing. The U.S. regrets and help, you know, cl- clear away any of the debris. And I don't think there was any. I'm sure somebody out there is going to correct me on this one. I'm trying to brush off my memory. It's been a while, uh, but I don't think there was any, you know, severe damage as a result of what occurred. Um. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, Skylab did you know impact parts of parts of Australia. I don't think Mir did anything. Uh, I think Mir gave us some pretty pictures of its reentry, and I believe there is a rather. I think there's a video out there of Mir coming in. Um, Telling you, hard hats, Etsy. Well, we got to open the shop <laughs> now. Open the shop now. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll give my favorite clownfish a hard hat. You know, good old. I'll give Nemo at, at swimming around point Nemo a, a hard hat. <laughs> Deal. There we go. 
Well, while the International Space Station is continuing to do science, we do want to point that out. Science is still going on and will continue through at least 2030. And that's not the only scientific instrument now operational up in space. The James Webb Space Telescope successfully launched and is now at the Lagrange Point where it will do all of its science about a million miles away from where we are right now. And the mirrors are extending and aligning. It has already sent back its first image that it is using to align the stars so that it can take some spectacular images and has even sent back a selfie of its mirrors, which again are currently in alignment as it is finally out where it needs to be and we are seeing pictures. Yeah, Sawyer, I, I love Lee Feinberg's uh, first quote from the, uh, from the press conference. Uh, he said, quote, this amazing telescope has not only spread its wings, but has finally opened its eyes. Um, it, it has pointed at uh, the target star that they wanted to go ahead and take a look at. Um, and the, uh, the individual 18 mirrors picked up light, almost matching the predictions of what they would see um, the computer, what, what, what the computer predicted of what they would see at this point. Um, the mirrors were aligned a little better actually than they thought they were. Um, but uh, again, I, people are, are yelling and screaming that um, JWST is, uh, has finally had its, its first light image images uh, shown to shown to everybody. And, uh, uh, of course, was that nice little dramatic selfie of the, the primary mirror uh, that, that made, its, made the rounds on, on social media, too. So um, there's still miles to go before they sleep here. They still have to go ahead and, and do a, a ton of calibration on, on the, uh, uh, the primary mirror and those, those 18 mirrors and get them all aligned properly. There's still calibration that has to be done on, on the instruments. All the instruments have not, repeat, not been turned on yet because it's been, it quite frankly has been too warm to turn them on. You, they want to wait till certain, you know, temperature thresholds have, have been reached. I know the, the near cam instrument, um, they, uh, they're saying too, that, um, all parts of this thing are, are working very well and, and matching predictions. Um, some of the other instruments, they're not, they're not fully turning on, on yet because I believe they want to get to a point where they want to get to, um, I believe it's six degrees above absolute zero. Yeah, the whole telescope is meant to operate at near zero, and that's why it has a sun shield that is the size of a tennis court for that very reason, and is pointed away from the sun. All this is to achieve that extremely cold temperature that these instruments need to operate in. And again, if you've seen that picture, that is not 18 different stars. That is one star from 18 different mirrors. It is an alignment image. And it is only a few pixels of the millions of pixels that were actually sent back from this image is what they've also specified. So this thing is already sending back huge amounts of data as they work to calibrate it. So only imagine what it's going to look like once that calibration completes in the next couple of months and we start to see more images. But it's up, it's working, 
and a lot of people around the globe and in the scientific community can finally start to breathe a little again. The, as an aside, um, I believe, I think it was at least Feinberg had, had been asked, um, is he breathing a little better? And he, he got the phone call. Basically the, the images started, the image that we saw was recorded on February 2nd. And I believe during the, the conference, um, he was asked, is he breathing a little better? And he said that his wife said after the images had come back and he was all smiles and he said, and she said, you know, that is the first time I've seen you smile since Christmas. <laughs> so that, that really wow. tells you flat out how, how people have been, been biting their nails as far as um, what, what has been, been going on, on with all, all of this. The other, um, the other thing I'll say too uh, is a, another member of the press had asked if there was a major flaw, you know, like what happened with, with Hubble, uh, with the spherical aberration problem. If there was a major flaw running around, can we rule that out right now? And um, Feinberg's answer was. Well, if there was a major flaw, a real major flaw, they probably would have seen it by now. Um, however, they want to get through all of the calibration uh, issues and all of the calibration, you know, protocols that they have to follow to rule out any kind of flaw. But so far, they're really, really happy with what they're seeing. Um, so... Uh, they gave a real big shout out to everybody involved, uh, getting them this far, um, Ball Aerospace, Northrop Grumman, all of the ESA teams that prepared the, the space telescope for launch. Uh, just the entire crew uh, seems to be operating together as a team. There are no, you know, something that um, I believe um, it might have been uh uh, Dr. Thomas Urbuchen mentioned that everybody has different badges on the team. One may have a Northrop Grumman badge. One may have another, you know, ball aerospace badge. The NASA badge is worn. The ESA badge is worn. Didn't matter what kind of badge they were wearing. It was all one team, one well-oiled machine working toward one purpose. And, and that is to make sure that this telescope is operating and operating flawlessly. And so far, you know, knock on wood, um, this thing has been been just you know acing each each step as they've been going through. Now the the, the entire calibration uh, and commissioning phase, I think, is going to go on for I, I believe 120 days. So we're we're really not going to see you know the 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 holy wow pictures um, at least until summertime. Uh, while they get all the you know the eyes dotted and t's crossed with the, uh, the the various instruments on board board uh, web, but but you know just strap in, keep an eye on on the internet, keep an eye on on the James Webb Telescope uh, website, no pun intended, and uh, uh, all of the social media feeds for for the project. There's some probably going to be some really good 
news coming out of there. Fingers crossed. But so far, this, this mission has been insanely going well. Even, you know, I mean, given the problems that they had on the ground, this thing's been way overdue in its in its launch. But gosh darn it, this has probably been the best Christmas present that, you know, humanity has ever but ever given itself and the, the proof is really going to be once this thing really starts doing science this summer and that is going to be stunning see i told you this whole show wasn't going to be doom and gloom all the way through yeah. you that <laughs> and that is the perfect happy note to end this episode on i'd like to thank everyone who joined us including you Majid mccalka Gosh darn, Sawyer, I had fun. Uh, I, let's do this again sometime, huh? I think that's a good call. Uh, thank you all for joining us, Mark Raderman. Let me know. I'll be back. Uh, I plan on it as well, and apologies for that long absence. That one is my fault this time. Uh, I had a serious medical problem not related to COVID-19, completely unrelated, that uh, knocked me out for quite a while. I'm still not back to full strength, but I wanted to get back on the air and back on this show because I had so much good stuff to share with you at the end of the last year. A couple of great launches that we were able to go to and have been able to share. So maybe at some point we'll be able to get some of that out to you. But in the meantime, we're back. We plan on staying back. Expect a couple episodes from us this year once again, uh, including following all the major developments with Starship and especially Artemis 1, which we hope to be there for. We hope you'll stick with us through 2022. We've got a feeling it's going to be a good year. As always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.